Many churches have like a men's group and a women's group and children's and so on. They have Tuesday night new a militia new recruit night. They are arming up. I've seen churches that are part of firearms culture. I've never seen churches with organized militias. I'm Mitch. And I'm Missy. We're co-workers. He's the boss and we're married. And she's the boss. Together, we host Good Faith Weekly, a podcast on faith and culture. What could possibly go wrong? Tune in and find out. Missy. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I return from being away for an entire week, and we are delighted to be back with you. And then later on in the pod, we sat down with author Jeff Charlotte, who has a brand new book out entitled The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. It is a great conversation, and I am thrilled that he joined us as a guest. So it's going to be a good pod. Stay tuned. Hello there, Missy. Hey there. How are you? I am well. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for asking. Yeah. So we, we've missed a whole week. So we did. We took a little vacay, but I not know. really. And a vacay. given that this is the only time during the week we communicate, that was kind of. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I mean, we we do catch up on the pod. We find out so much about each other. That's right. Each and every. And then week. we go to our separate corners, right? Absolutely. <laughs> That's the way every healthy marriage should be. Absolutely. Hey, it's what keeps the spark alive. <laughs> Oh, so my we, we, yes, we were out last week at our board meeting yeah. in Birmingham, Alabama. And I have good news after our board meeting. Okay. Good news, bad news. Okay. Good news. We both still have jobs. We do. Hey, high five on yeah. that one. Boom. And bad news is it's so sad to leave our friends. I know. It's just like, you know, coming out of the pandemic, you know, this is our second in-person meeting, but, you know, you start getting used to hanging around these really cool people and you don't I know there are so <laughs> many cool really cool and just fascinating um people out there and we have so many of them on our board and it's it, as much as I, every time we're leading up to this as i'm working on logistics and things and thinking oh is this even necessary and then you get to that space to that physical space with people and absolutely it's so life-giving um i think we did like you said we kind of forgot during covid that, that just how much that fills your soul to yeah, be around this sure does. Hey, I got a question for you. Uh-oh, what? The secret, though. Uh-oh. Who's your favorite board member? Oh, no. <laughs> We're not going there. <laughs> oh, my favorites. They're all your favorites. So. so we did that, and then we went on uh, following our board meeting. We had our Good Faith Media Civil Rights Experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, we took some board members and some other folks who joined us for uh, two days traveling from Birmingham to Selma to Montgomery, visiting sites um, from the civil rights movement and museums and things. And it was so powerful. Yeah. I mean, Reverend Starlet Thomas, uh, director of our Racist Gospel here at Good Faith Media, led the experience and she was just outstanding energy, inspiration, educational. It was just really, really moving. It was so impactful. And I, I'm sure our audience might be surprised to hear that I'm rather an anxious being. (laughs) No. (laughs) Yes. And there are a couple of things that make me incredibly anxious. Okay. One of those is time. 
Sure. You know this, right? I do know this. So you put me in charge of a group of 30 folks trying to move from point A to point B, you know, over and over during a tour Mm -hmm. like this. And and there's a little bit of anxiety happening, right? Yeah. So we take off. We we were on a very tight schedule in order to hit all of our spots that we needed to go to that first day. And so we take off to the first spot, which was the historic Bethel Baptist Church. Mm -hmm. This is where... uh, Reverend Shuttlesworth was yep. the pastor and we had a set time. We had to be there and then they want you there 15 minutes early. So it's go, 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 go. You're driving a van and um, our colleague is, is behind us. And so we've mapped this location. We are driving there and we start venturing back into really a very industrial looking area, right? Mm-hmm. We cross over several railroad tracks and you and I are kind of looking at each other. I think you even got a little nervous because mm-hmm. you know, sometimes you put an address in ways and it takes you to like Northeast right, Robinson exactly. instead of Southeast Robinson yeah, or something like nervous, that. Yeah. And so we, we were kind of side-eyeing each other, wondering where we were going. And, you know, after a few minutes of, of driving and a few more railroad tracks, we ended up arriving at our destination mm-hmm. and the feeling of driving over those railroad tracks and then going into the church and learning about, um, the church, the community, um, Reverend Shuttlesworth and what he went through, what the church went through, what people went through. And then for them to talk about the boxing in of their community, mm-hmm by railroad tracks in the red lining. And I'm very, very embarrassed to admit how old I was when I really learned about red lining. Um, aside from the one sentence our history books gave it in school. Right. But I will never forget the feeling of driving over those railroad tracks and knowing what that means and what that indicates and how intentional that was for those communities and how people literally died trying to get to a hospital because a train was stopped on the tracks. Mm-hmm. You know, that is such an important point that you bring up because so often when we think about the civil rights movement, when we think about racism in America, a lot of times our minds go straight to some of the most horrific acts and hate speech that we've encountered in America. And rightly so. I mean, we've got a horrible track record when it comes to, to racial injustice in this country. But the the what has gone under the radar is exactly what you're talking about. The redlining, the boxing in of communities, the targeting economically of communities so that they cannot gain wealth, as we learned in Tulsa, Oklahoma, when we Mm -hmm. covered the Tulsa race massacre. That is like insult to injury. It's and it's so calculated and so evil. It's, as as evil as anyone who will take out physical harm on anyone or or yell or, or you know, be face-to-face hateful, the amount of calculation, the amount of just intentionality to plan these things that take years to implement in order to suffocate a community, mm-hmm. I'll just, ne- like I said, I'll never forget it. It happened, you know, a few times during our experience because we went to um, – another a restaurant, Lanny's Barbecue, which was the only restaurant during the civil rights movement that would serve both white and black people. And mm-hmm. so it was a historic place. We went there for lunch. It was amazing. Um, but it was the same kind of thing. We were driving back in a neighborhood and you started looking at me like, am I going to the right place? Mm-hmm. 
because again, it looked like we were going into an industrial area with the railroad tracks and the warehouses and things like that. that. And they got hit by a tornado weeks earlier. Well, <laughs> yes, that was really sad. Yeah. But um, anyway, so that's what I, that was my takeaway was just that feeling of driving over those tracks. I'll never forget it. You know, you mentioned something just a moment ago that it feels like they, you know, they're being choked out. Mm-hmm. Man, the first image that came to my mind when you said that was George Floyd. Yeah. I mean, we're still doing it. We are still doing it. Yeah. I mean, wow. In 2023, we're yeah. still doing it. Well, it was a great experience. Uh, you know, we had uh, an incredible educational time and reflection and inspiration there in Birmingham at Fred Shuttlesworth Church. And then we went over to 16th Street Baptist Church where the four little girls were killed in the bombing. And then we walked over to the park where uh, marchers were. Uh, Water hose, dogs were uh, you know, released on them. It was very, very emotional. The whole the whole time was was very powerful. I'm thankful that I got to tag along since we were there for our board meeting. Mm-hmm. I will say we are um, actively working to plan another yep. civil rights experience. I would highly recommend if you're able to to join our our crew to do that. It it was just amazing. I yep. mean heartbreaking, but also just something I'll never forget. Something I'm so glad that I did. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, we're back in studio. We've got a very special guest with us this week, Jeff Charlotte, who has a new book, The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. This guy is amazing and remarkable. He is a prolific author. One of his books was turned into a Netflix series, The Family. You're not going to miss our conversation with Jeff Charlotte. Stay tuned. Have the last few years shifted your faith? I'm Brett Harris, and last year I walked away from the pulpit without a plan. I just knew where I was wasn't where I was supposed to be. And I'd love for you to join me as I wander and wonder about faith and scripture and how we can continue to follow Jesus' example even when our path forward is unclear. Find God Knows Where today in your favorite podcast app. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us. Jeff Charlotte is a New York Times bestselling author and editor of eight books, including The Family, The Secret Fundamentalism, At the Heart of American Power, adapted into a Netflix documentary series, and This Brilliant Darkness. His reporting on LGBTQI plus rights around the world has received numerous awards. His writing and photography have appeared in many publications, including Vanity Fair, for which he is a contributing editor, The New York Times Magazine, GQ, Esquire, Harper's, and VQR, for which he is an editor at large. He is professor in the art of writing at Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. And his latest book, The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War, is on stands now. Jeff, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Hi, Mitch. Good to be with you. So, Jeff, before we jump into the content of the book, I wondered if you might share with our listeners sort of the backdrop of how this project came to be, the very literal journey that you took in creating it. Uh, you know, the the undertow, the, the subtitle scenes from the slow civil war, right? And it's a, it's about this moment that I believe we find ourselves in, this moment of great fragmentation, as I say, in the beginning of the book and the preface. You know, usually the preface is written looking back, but I can't look back because we're in the middle of things. Mm-hmm. I don't know where it's going. Um, but I've been writing about right-wing movements for, uh, among other topics, for about 20 years. 
Um, and so I've sort of seen this undertow that's sort of pulling this out. That said, this book began as a as a alternative that I wanted to write. It, it begin it opens and closes with songs. It opens with Harry Belafonte, who we lost last week at age ninety six, um, and it ends with uh, uh, a man named Lee Hayes, whose name isn't known, but people know his songs. Uh, if I had a hammer and uh, Kisses Sweeter Than Wine and Goodnight Irene and on top of Old Smokey, big parts of the American songbook. He was Pete Seeger's songwriting partner. Originally, the book was going to be about songs. Yeah. I was fascinated by these songs that I grew up in my little uh, almost all white working class elementary school singing these songs in music class with no understanding that they were radical songs in a sense that they were freedom songs liberation songs and as i just started to discover the stories behind that i thought i'll make a song book um but then trump got elected <laughs> everything I else like changed that can, like, be yeah. the caveat in many sentences <laughs> and i i want and that's why those two chapters are there and they're the bookends and they're the hope that i hold on to but you know it's a little bit also um i have kids i have a i have a queer non-binary child um, who is autistic and so faces a world in which there's a great amount of antagonism. And I realized, look, I have been writing about these right-wing movements for a long time. This is something I know how to do and something I think I can bring some knowledge to that maybe is missing in the press. It's not entirely a different project. Um, it's still about uncovering the sort of the currents um, uh, that are carrying us right now toward a frightening place. But you do that so you can figure out how to swim to a safer place. I love that. And I love the fact that you started the book, first chapter, uh, with Belafonte that you mentioned a moment ago. We lost just, I mean, just recently. What a, a wonderful person. We were actually, Missy and I were actually in Birmingham, Alabama last week, uh, and we had a civil rights experience through uh, Good Faith Media. And so we toured the sites there in Birmingham, then we went over to Selma, walked the bridge, and then went over to Montgomery to the Legacy Museum. It was an incredible experience. But as we were talking about the movement. We were visiting all these incredible places, Shuttlesworth, uh, King, uh, Lewis, all of them. Um, you know, we did have a conversation about Belafonte and how he, you know, bankrolled, uh, you know, many parts of the civil rights movement. But there's this one quote in the book that I really appreciate, and I want you to comment on it. Belafonte says, all of America's problems are rooted in the fact that we are all jesters. Not one of us truth tellers. But then he adds, referring to King, most likely, find out what the reward is for truth telling. Jeff, can you comment on this idea of America being filled with jesters and the need for more truth tellers? Yeah, I'm so glad you, you asked that, Mitch, because that's, uh, to me, that that's a big part of why Mr. B, as he was known, uh, still opens the book that is about this moment uh, of of Christian nationalism and even the F word, I, I believe is appropriate now, hasn't long been, which is fascism. Yep. Um, and as did Mr. B, uh, but he, he, because he provides us the diagnosis, he gives us a diagnosis and it's a very complicated one that he calls it the minstrel act, you know, corking up blackface. Um, and uh, he extends this to, to all of American life, including himself. Um, 
his diagnosis of white supremacy is so vast that here's a man who every day of his 96 years fought against it, but he knows that to be an American right now, um, you, you don't get to say, well, I that has nothing to do with me. We're all complicit in this to greater and lesser degrees, some actively, uh, some, some resisting it, um, some giving into the undertow and say, just pull me out into the, the, the wild ocean of white fantasia and white nightmare, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I think that's something that I wanted us to wrestle with. I, did, I didn't want people, I wanted to start with that because I wanted readers to go through and not read this book entirely as, um, you know, a look at those people. And those people right. being right wingers and fascists and so on. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, there is, you know, we're not all the same. I don't believe in the idea of common ground. To me, common ground is a plantation. Mm. Power relationships are still there. Um, I believe in the old labor song, which side are you on? I think the right has created that moment for us, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that we are not. We are not in this great piece of land together. Um, we're not in this together. The fascists are not monsters. They're, and I can't humanize them. They are human. Mm-hmm. So am I. That means I am in this relationship to them. This is maybe a little, this show is probably okay to say this. Their sins are in some ways mine, right? I'm, oh yeah. hundred percent. Um, and I think, uh, that if the minstrel act that Mr. B talked about was, uh, had, had many aspects um, but I think part of it was the way in which um, you can be complicit in so many ways. And one of the ways you can be complicit is in imagining that somehow you're apart from all that. Mm-hmm. And that's what I really appreciated about the book, because you're, you're a storyteller and you tell these stories. You spent time with right wing fundamentalists, uh, you know, religious zealots, and you just simply told their story and reported, you know, how they think, what they say, how they act. And it was just really, I think, a, an insightful way to communicate kind of what they're thinking and what they're experiencing. So I thought it was very well done. Thanks. 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 I mean, this is a thing like, uh, 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 you often, um, I, I teach writing here at Dartmouth college and, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, sometimes students, uh, they're going out into the world to write and, and they can say, I'm going to meet this kind of person. What should I wear? And, you know, my answer is usually, you know, pants would be good, uh, a shirt, you know, no costumes. In other words, your work is to try and be human. And I think actually most of us spend most of our days not doing that, right? right. We, we, we have to, we work with manners and so on. But if I'm going to go to another person and I want to see what they are, even if that thing is, is with many of these people deliberately by choice, ugly and filled with hate, mm-hmm. I just have to sit there with them and be human. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean that look, hopefully no one is going to get the wrong idea and say, oh, this is like one of those books where he goes to diners. I do go to a diner, but he goes <laughs> to diners and says, gosh, they're people too. Yeah, he already yeah. knew they're people too. Yeah. The question, what do they believe and how do they come to believe it? Sure. And the question is, because we are in a struggle, uh, we need to understand that if we are to build something better than what they imagine for us. Love it. So you also talk about in the book, the, um, there's a chapter talking about Occupy Wall Street, and you use the term physical democracy. Will you un- explain that a little bit for our audience and talk about why that's important? Yeah, the second chapter of the book, after Mr. B, because I couldn't 
stand to begin. Uh, there was a point at which I thought I was going to begin the book with this movement called the men's rights movement. And right. they believe that men are the true white men in particular, are the true victims of society. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I've written about so many right wing movements and they're always more interesting than their caricature, except for those guys. Um, <laughs> the, the caricature is dumb and they are dumber. <laughs> you know, in a book like this, it'll crush souls. So I start with to be, and then I had this little essay that I'd written about Occupy Wall Street. I did a lot of reporting about Occupy mm -hmm. uh, back then for Rolling Stone, but I'd also written this little essay kind of around Occupy Wall Street down in New York in 2011. Um, uh, it had a free library, not like the little, you know, uh, little book houses you see out, um, but it understood that like we're trying to imagine something. We don't have the demands. We don't have the answers. We don't know what the beloved community looks like, but let's try and imagine. And probably there'll be books. And they had several thousand volumes. They had librarians, you know, professional librarians would come and do free shifts there. And, and so I built it around that. And I started spending time there and sleeping there. And I saw also their consensus model. They want to make decisions by consensus. Now we can talk about how pragmatic that is and so on. But just for a moment, the essay is called On the Side of Possibility. Just for a moment, imagine uh, that, they, that they're actually going to try and do it. And they did. The physical democracy was, we're going to be here together. We're mm -hmm. going to get our food together. We're going to get our books together. We're going to get our music together. And when it comes to making decisions, because the NYPD and sort of slowly cracking down and said, no microphones, uh, um, they came up with this idea called the human microphone, right? So uh, the speaker says something, and then those closest repeat it and it mm -hmm. gets amplified right it's a slow process <laughs> um mostly it shuts it's great it's great for people like me who talk too much because it, right? <laughs> it would shut you down it would make you think what is the thing that i am here to say what is right. the thing that i want to say and it just felt like this moment of yeah physical democracy and and political imagination and um uh I think it's important as you encounter the imagination of the far right, which is vivid and very strong and real. Not all imagination is is good, you know, um, uh, to be reminded of those moments of of freedom imagination. I love that term. And as I was reading that chapter in particular and just kind of contemplating on the phrase uh, physical democracy, I just thought throughout the you know, the America's history, as I said a moment ago, we just uh, were in Birmingham and Selma and Montgomery, that there are individuals who practice this physical democracy. Democracy is just not an idea or a concept. It must be acted upon and within. And so, you know, I, I just thought it was a brilliant way to talk about how democracy plays out and for those in society who are marginalized or oppressed, they have to enact a physical democracy sometimes in the system in order to achieve those rights or equality in the system. Yeah, I think I think that's very true. And I'm so glad you said that because there's so often we hear that language, right, of um, uh, we must preserve democracy, mm -hmm. um, which you know, I, I pay attention to the verbs, right? Preserve. What do you mean? Like a jam jar? Like, you know, put it on a shelf, you know? Right. Um, or or uh, we used to have a democracy. You never have a democracy. That's very passive. It's something that you, you get up. Um, uh, it's something that you get up and do right. uh, uh, every day. And I think um, 
you know, it's interesting that you say that about about like Black Lives Matter with people doing physical right. democracy. But then that pushes us into this question of January 6th. Mm-hmm. Many of those people experienced in their own imaginations that they were engaged in physical democracy. Um, and uh, on the, I don't want to entirely, I mean, I mostly want to discount that, but right, not sure. entirely discount. I don't want to discount the fact that this is what they understood themselves to be doing, mm-hmm. even as I'm clear that it's not what they were doing. Right. Um, but we have to contend um, uh, with that. These are folks who, who like me at Occupy, I met so many January Sixers who would say, yeah, I, I felt alive. I felt like I was really a part of democracy for the first time. Mm-hmm. And you say, well, you know, Occupy, you felt alive. You're part of democracy because you were cooking together and making music together and sharing books. Or January 6th, you felt like you were part of democracy because you were smashing windows. The democracy that some on January 6th imagine, we have to keep in mind that there's increasingly large swaths of the right now that um uh that actually explicitly reject democracy um but that the democracy they thought they were being a part of um there are democratic impulses there right there's a democracy of destruction there is this sense that i would encounter again and again as i would talk to followers of QAnon, and and as i dug into the life of ashley babbitt the the white woman the 35 year old white woman air force veteran killed on january 6th that they experienced what they called doing the research mm-hmm. they experienced this as access to this archive to which they felt they had been denied and it's easy for me to say you know sitting on a college campus with a big beautiful library um I have a library and these folks who are discovering the archive for the first time and making these connections and doing this kind of research. Um, there's a verb. They are doing research, how they do the research, who shapes that research, where they start and stop. Those become questions of belief. And I think that's why it matters so much to even in approaching not just Christian nationalism, but the larger sphere of fascism to bring with us the insights of religious study of 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 the study of myth and the study of storytelling another part uh, of the book you talk about uh, norman vincent pill's uh influence upon donald trump and the prosperity gospel and i just wanted you to touch on that a little bit because you know we all feel like at times we're being gaslit <laughs> because people are saying things over and over again when we know in, you know intellectually that that can't be true but after they say it it's the, you begin to kind of wonder aloud or internally you know what what am i being told so could you speak a little bit to that because to me that is one of the most frightening parts of the trump error was when they started talking about alternative facts and it caught on. Yeah. Yeah. I think what Norman Vincent Peale, uh, the sort of very famous mid-century preacher of the power of positive thinking, one of these mega best-selling books and, and Trump referred to him as his pastor. And it's true as a young person, Trump, Trump was very enamored of Billy Graham watching Billy Graham, not, I think in a religious sense, but in the terms of a salesman sense, right? Um, and he had sort of three mentors, though: Norman Vincent Peale, um, uh, and Roy Cohn, the the famous Red Scare lawyer, um, who became his lawyer, and uh, his father, Fred Trump. Um, and from each man, he sort of 
learn something. From Fred Trump, it's this kind of brute strength. From Roy Cohn, it's cunning. Uh, from Norman Vincent Peale, it's this, uh, by positive thinking, it might, we, might, we might rephrase that as a kind of endless well of narcissism, an endless well of certainty, and the coercive power of po positive thinking. You will it into being. Trump believed he could be president. And he could, right? Right. Um, Trump believed uh, he could do all kinds of devastating things, and they become real. I think about in the beginning, maybe the flip side of the power of positive thinking is a sheriff that I met uh, years ago reporting another book um, and uh, taught me something very important. I write about this in the introduction. The first time I found myself on the wrong side of the gun, but not the last, including some that happened in this book. Yeah. Uh, I was reporting on a, a gunman who had gone into a church and opened fire. Uh, thank God there were blanks. Mm -hmm. Nobody was physically hurt. Uh, I go to interview the sheriff. He's very, he's not a friendly sheriff. This is a real old time Southern sheriff and I'm really a New Yorker. And uh, um, at one point he pulls out of his drawer a gun and he aims it at me. And I don't know what's going on. I'm already scared. And I right. you know, jump in my seat sure. and he goes, see, it's a, it's a toy gun that looks exactly like a real gun. He says, see, now, if you had pulled that on me, I would have shot you. And that just goes to show you that things that aren't real can still hurt you. Mm. That's also the positive thinking of Trumpism. Mm -hmm. It doesn't need to be real to hurt us. And it's why I write in the book, you can't fact check your way out of a myth. Yep. We can't simply say, well, that's QAnon isn't true. Nothing to worry about. Um, uh, as we see in the book, lives are destroyed by this thing that isn't even real. Mm -hmm. So piggybacking on kind of what you just said about things that aren't real, I think there's a um, probably a lot of people who still don't really believe and fully grasp what's happening out there. And I'm thinking about the story of you going into the church that has the altar of the swords. Would you share that with our audience? Yeah, yeah. So well, the, the, the big piece of the book, the undertow, the, the, the title essay is on... Um, I wanted to understand the creation of a, a, a martyr myth uh, for Ashley Babbitt, the woman, the white woman who was killed by a black man on January 6th. And the reason I mentioned the race is because that is the old lynching story. And very quickly, uh, um, the right starts organizing around this idea of innocent white womanhood under threat by a dangerous black man, um, the black man being the police officers defending the Capitol. Um, and I go out to Sacramento, California, to start my journey uh, at a rally for Ashley Babbitt it devolves into a brawl uh, between Proud Boys and Antifa. And one person says, look, you really want to understand what Ashley Babbitt died for. Why don't you come to my church? We're having a special guest speaker tonight, the Church of the Glad Tidings in Yuba City, California, north of Sacramento. Uh, not a mega church, sort of like a mini mega, um, large. Um, uh, Yuba City is an agricultural place, sort of semi-suburban, and then plenty of people who are actually working in agriculture. Um, Three-hour Saturday night service. And uh, first thing I notice, I go in, there's no crosses. And I've been in churches without crosses before. Um, here, there's a, a pulpit made of three cross swords. And uh, as I got to talking to the pastor, a man who has sort of risen to some kind of regional and even sort of almost national prominence within his community. Uh, he explained that he found the cross to be sort of weak tea, um, uh, 
we're talking about muscular Christianity. So wow. he says, sort of sissified. He says, now is a time for war theology. Now is a time for a Christian faith of battle. We are in the civil war now. Um, and this church, that wasn't just a metaphor. Some right. view, there was a video from it that went viral uh, last year of the church presenting General Mike Flynn, who was Trump's first sure, national yeah. security advisor, leading QAnon figure, presenting him with a customized AR-15. What I found fascinating in the video, people didn't comment as much on, was that the church also gave their own pastor customized AR-15, inscribed on it a verse from the book of Joshua, Joshua 1.9. A verse that on the face of it is innocuous, um, but has come to be embraced by many on the right as a battle verse. I found it all across this movement. Um, and a reading of the book of Joshua, which is certainly there. They don't have to stretch to see the kind of total war aspects of Joshua who goes into Jericho with the intent of killing all within, right? Um, that was this different kind of church, and they're acting on it. That church, you know, most, many churches have like a men's group and a women's group and children's and so on. They have Tuesday night new a militia new recruit night. Oh, my um, gosh. Wow. They are arming up. It was the first militia church I'd been to, but it wasn't the last. And in 20 years, I, I've seen churches that are part of firearms culture. I've never seen churches with organized militias. Mm. You know, and I wanted to talk, I wanted to ask you, and we still can talk about it, about toxic masculinity. And it seems to be everywhere these days, uh, you know, with women losing reproductive rights to attacks on our LGBTQI plus community to the escalation of gun violence. And I think that is an important topic to talk about, but hearing you speak, Jeff, what do you think is the prime theological conviction behind this embrace of fascism and just this extremism that we're seeing, especially on the right, is it attached to dominionism or is there something else afoot here? I think, I think it's a little more complex than that. When I saw, I mean, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, is fascism possible in America? I would say, yeah, there's pockets of fascism all over, right? Mm -hmm. There are communities that live and effectively the experience of a kind of a fascist brutality. But no, I would have said fascism is impossible in the United States precisely because of our unique amongst these sort of developed nations relationship to religion and to Christianity in particular. This is not all entirely good news, right? Mm -hmm. I'm saying even fundamentalism was an obstacle to fascism um, because it would never embrace the personality cult. Um, we, you know, put simply, we're not going to switch out the father for the Fuhrer, right? right God right. for a person. 2015, I see Trump come down the golden escalator, and I've been writing for years before that about dominionists who support that kind of thing mm -hmm. overseas, but not here. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, here he is. Here's the dictators they've been embracing overseas. Now he's coming down the golden escalator to us. He's bringing a fascist aesthetic. Will he build the fascist movement? I think of it as happening slowly. In 2016, we might describe that campaign as the prosperity gospel, which I think your listeners probably are familiar with. Sure. 2020, yeah. I thought of it as a little bit of a, it was darker. It was more conspiratorial mm -hmm. um, and as kind of a bastardized, Americanized, Gnostic gospel, a gospel of secrets for those who were initiated, a gospel of critiquing of the deep state, mm -hmm. which 
Gnosticism would have understood right. as a sort of waterless canals was the language from it. But then on January 6th, we en enter the age of martyrs. So I think if we look at dominionism or anything like that, it's all too narrow. Mm -hmm. Fascism is a broad social movement. That's a term we like to think of ourselves as, as a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. Social movement can be anything. And we know that social movements, and you said you were down there in Selma and, 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 and Montgomery and so on. We know that they're great convergences. And what was beautiful about the march from uh, Selma to Montgomery um, were all the different folks who came together to make that powerful. So to fascism, it's not beautiful, but it's a convergence of all. So dominionism is in there, but the transgressive ugliness of the men's rights movements are in there. To the question of is it driven by race or class or gender? Of course, the answer is yes. Um, this is the intersectionality of, of fascism. And what is the overarching theology? I do believe, I do believe it is utopian. First of all, fascism is by definition utopian. Isn't utopia good? Utopia is nowhere, right? But this is their dream state. It's a dream politics. And I think also it's a just a joy, an ecstatic joy, a militant eroticism, and chaos, the comfort of chaos, right. the solace of the surreal, um, uh, the desire to burn it all down, which I think, I mean, I'm 51 and a father and but at certainly times in my life when you just look at the world and you look at what's wrong with it and you say, "Ugh, you hate institutions because <laughs> how corrupt they are. We need to burn it down and build something new, right? Um, these are folks who have given into that impulse entirely. So, Jeff, I mean, the book is full of stories, uh, but you said a moment ago you wanted the book to be a book of hope. And we've talked a lot about depressing things here in this uh, time together. But can you talk about what gives you hope? There's some kids I met in Wisconsin. The penultimate chapter, uh, The Great Acceleration, is uh, I was in Wisconsin uh, when uh, Dobbs came down and Roe v. Wade fell. And in fact, I had some friends who were in the IVF process. And uh, uh, my friend was was literally seeing her doctor in the fertility clinic, uh, you know, in the examination room when Dobbs came down. And the doctor had to step out because uh, they'd gotten a call, comes back in, tears in her eyes, says, I can't continue. Wisconsin became the first blue state in which abortion was totally illegal, reverting back to 1849 law, no exceptions. Mm -hmm. Said our council has advised us that IVF, because of the, the possibilities of embryos not being used, could break the law. And this was stunning to me. So I want, I, I just said, I'm gonna try and understand this. The way I try and, I used to write about sort of more powerful groups, now I'm more interested in reception. So right. I just wander around Wisconsin. It's easy to know who to ask questions to because they fly flags, <laughs> so many different flags. There's yeah. all the varieties of Trump flags and F Joe Biden flags, the flags with snakes on them, flags with skulls, flags with lots and lots of flags with guns on them, crossed AR-15s and AR-15 come and get it, an American flag made up of handguns for stars, long guns for stripes, and the all-black flag, which is the most frightening of all. Mm. It's a, a, a sort of a genocide flag. And you asked about hope, so I'm getting there. Don't worry. I'm not <laughs> and I go to the town of Black River Falls, Wisconsin, a little town, little 
little town in central Wisconsin. And uh, um, this is not Madison. You know, this is not Milwaukee. This is not hipster blue Wisconsin. Um, and I drive in and on a bridge uh, over the Black River is this one young woman um, holding up a sign. I think the sign she's holding at that point said, your misogyny is showing. Um, and uh, and and then I sort of circle around and she's been joined by a couple others. Uh, these are all young people, yeah. uh, young women and queer folks. And it's worth noting, there are no young straight men who had the courage to come join them. Right. Uh, and it took courage because people are shouting at them. There's a, a, a kind of a town fundamentalist preacher. Mm-hmm big guy much bigger than this this one young woman of four foot nine this guy's towering over her cursing at her calling her a whore and uh she stands her ground and these are not radical kids they're student body presidents they're uh a cheerleader a cheerleader named uh peyton shows up with the black river falls tigers and she's got a son and this is good faith radio so i probably don't want me to say what the sign says i'm very we, ha- proud we have to have a bleep a- button for me so you're yeah. fine <laughs> yeah. okay all right she's got her son it says off yeah and it's as simple as that yeah and what does it mean and it's it's vulgar right she's like right. there's no for people who are taking away my rights uh, she means like this and it's anger it's anger at everything yeah. at all at me at you at all of us who are older who have failed to protect the rights mm-hmm. of the next generation she says it means rage um now we are to say that rage is hope we are still to say that when i asked these kids about civil war thinking as so many of the right wingers wanted to talk about they were right on it too they're like bring it on they're all rural Wisconsinites. They were all armed except for one who was an archer. And they thought of her as their Katniss, like in Hunger Games, <laughs> yeah. which is a reminder to us that these are children, right? right. Young people. Mm-hmm. Um, they're still thinking in terms of those stories, not the real horror that a war would be, mm-hmm. but the heart, the courage. They are not sitting there saying, why wasn't I protected? They know they weren't. Mm-hmm. And they are ready to protect themselves, to step up and do what I think our generation has failed to fully do to have we've been so busy having democracy we haven't been doing democracy enough that gave me a lot of hope the courage of those kids and the fact that i didn't find them in madison or milwaukee or any other big center i found them in a little small town uh uh central wisconsin ready for the struggle can we talk we often talk about how inspired we are by our adult children who are in their 20s and their friends and those communities they're just they've had enough i mean they just are they're disappointed in everybody who has come before them because we have failed them and yeah. they are willing to stand on principle and to act in a way that we haven't seen in a while so you're right it's inspiring so my goal, I asked Mitch before we came on here, I said, is there any hope of us ever working this man out of a job? Basically, <laughs> let's let's send you back to writing about things that happened in the past and not <laughs> having to <laughs> write about what's going on right now. So is, is there any hope of that? Will you, will you be able to go back to writing reflectively? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I... 
the end of the the, the undertow essay, I end up because I'm sentimental and I'm not opposed to being sentimental. I think I think uh, those of us who are educated in our resistance to being sentimental, we're we're missing like, hey, let's emotion is strong and it can be real and sometimes it can be corny and cheesy. And this is corny and cheesy. I was thinking about my favorite children's book that I that I would read to my kids when they were little, going on a bear hunt. Um, Mm-hmm. And it has, a, it's this family, uh, they're going on a, they're not really going to hunt a bear, like shoot a bear. They just like want to go see a bear. The whole story is they encounter obstacles, you know, uh, 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 tall grass. Can't go under it, can't go over yeah. it, just have to go through it. And then there's a sound effect, swishy, 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 as they go through the grass, the river, the mud. Can't go over it, can't go under it, can't have to go through it. And I thought of this as I was driving at the end of this long journey across America. And I was coming home to my kids. It was late at night. Uh, 2 a.m. or whatever, coming over the Green Mountains into Vermont, and uh, and I, that I had gone. I was thinking about prepositions. Are we in America? Are we on America? I was thinking about the history of this land, and I include in the book, and I think I will in the future, grand acknowledgments. Thinking about what is the layer, the layered meanings of this land, but I felt like I had gone through America, and I felt like the fascism we face. Um, I can't offer the cheap grace of saying, um, no, we're going to have to, we're, we're going through it and we're going to have to keep going through it. Um, I think, I think if it's, you can call it optimism to say we will get through it or, or some of us will. And I think I use the term slow civil war because some of us won't, some of us already haven't all the pregnant people dying for lack of reproductive rights and any journalist knows whatever story you've heard about someone i include one in here of a person bleeding to death and nearly bleeding to death there are a hundred for every you hear that just never make it to the news all the people killed by QAnon. we hear every now and then of a killing right a family a, a husband kills his whole family i included a case that didn't make national news or local news even just a woman who went smashing into cars because she thought they were kidnapping children her life is ruined. She's traumatized those other people. Um, I think of all the, especially the young people, but especially the queer kids, the trans kids, the wave of suicide. Those are casualties in the slow civil war. They won't make it through it. The rest of us who are still here must try to make it through it mm. for them. And so that we can write, I don't know, children's books. Or, or, or I was so busy before I turned to this learning the names of plants, which I realized at middle age, I didn't know the names of plants. And uh, I, I was going to work on a gardening book. Um, <laughs> well, we um, hope that we, we get to a point where you can just plan. work on a gardening book. <laughs> that's It'll right. be a companion guide to Mitch's um, birding book. Birding book, that's right. Oh, <laughs> yes, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Birding, birding and gardening and all these sort of ways in which you know, I'm going around looking at all the colorful fascist flags. Wouldn't it be nice to look at all the colorful flowers <laughs> and, and, and birds? Because they also, they're not static stories, right? right. They're la- like learning those, the names of things right. means the histories of things. And there's conflict in those stories, too. I mean, I think what the ivory build, what is it, the ivory build woodpecker? Yeah. That, that rarest of birds and uh-huh. whether it's still alive or not and the sort of whole complexity and why it went extinct. Mm-hmm. You're simultaneously appreciating the beauty and the challenge to that beauty. And so, I mean, I, in terms of the fight against fascism, I'm a very much an all hands on deck kind of person. And there's Absolutely. folks who say, no, we got to do it this way. Got to do it this way. Got to do it this way. Yeah. How about, yes. Yeah, uh, exactly. I mean, birding community. 
Everybody, <laughs> everybody, <laughs> to your stations, birders, get out get there. Out and there. Beautiful, right? And look, um, get out there and get involved in elections and churches, uh, organize for a, a better gospel. And look, if Antifa wants to brawl on the street, it's not my thing. I wouldn't advise it. Right. But I'm not going to be in this sort of place. I'm not going to be in this place of saying this way, not that way. Yeah. We don't know what's going to how we're going to get through it. Yeah. Um, we have to try everything. I love that. Jeff Charlotte, his new book, The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War, is on bookshelves now, and you'll want to pick up your copy immediately. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us on Good Faith Weekly. But before we let you go, Missy's got one last question for you. So, Jeff, as you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of your work and our conversation today, what is your more to tell? Well... You, yeah, I knew that. And then I'd forgotten. I was supposed to be preparing. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking and I didn't. But here's the more to tell is I'll say this. Um, I hope this isn't isn't cheating or taking the easy way out. The last line of the book is for a while it was possible not to be scared even. That's something that was uh, written by Lee Hayes, this great American songwriter. And uh, I knew from very beginning, it was the first thing I wrote, and I knew from the very beginning that I was writing toward that moment, because that to me is the opposite of the kind of cheap grace, cheap optimism that we sometimes encounter. It doesn't say everything's going to be okay. We don't know. It's for a while, it was possible not to be scared even. He said that, he wrote that about one night. He's a big, powerful guy, right? But he was afraid, rightly afraid of, of what was there in the world. And he was riding through the Arkansas night with a group of uh, labor organizers and there was gun thugs after them and they, they would sing labor songs. But that night he says, we found ourselves singing the old church hymns. They'd all been raised in the church. He was the son of a preacher. They weren't believers, not of that sort anyways. Um, and the sound of their voices, frightened voices in a car speeding, right? It just allowed them to sort of feel as if for a while it was possible not to be scared even. And that to me, that is some hard earned hope. That's my one more thing that I always remind myself um, that take those moments. It's, it's a little bit more than, you know, we have that concept of a safe space. Right now, there aren't so many safe spaces, but we can find with each other safe moments. And, and hold on to those and remember those and use those to make more of them. I love that hard-earned hope. That's great. <laughs> uh, That's great. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us on Good Faith Weekly. We wish you the very best, and you're welcome back anytime, my friend. Thank you, Mitch. Thank you, Missy. All right, so Missy, I have to first admit this. I was pretty darn giddy when we booked Jeff Charlotte. I know you were. <laughs> I mean, I've been a fan of his for so long, read his books, watched the documentary on Netflix. And when I saw that he had this new book coming out, I could not write the email fast enough. <laughs> so I was also giddy, but for a different reason, um, in part because I've been so wanting to have parent-teacher conferences since our kid <laughs> went to college, and he he's a student at, at Dartmouth where, yeah. where um, Jeff is a professor, and so I just keep, even though he hasn't had him as a teacher, it's the closest thing I get to being able to say, have you seen my kid? He won't call me back, so I was also giddy. <laughs> That's hysterical. And I want to clarify something I said at the end of the interview, because yeah. now, as you know, I tend to obsess over things that I say. And just so that I can go to sleep tonight, I don't really want to put this man out of a job. <laughs> no. I, I just no. want 
to him to be able to write in a different way. Yeah, about gardening. Things about like gardening. That. <laughs> or, or about things that happened in the past and how, look how we've come out of this. Isn't this wonderful? Yeah. So um, he's fantastic. His writing is fantastic. Um, yes, we both admire or admire him a lot. But um, that was a great interview. Yeah. So what stood out to you uh, with our time with Jeff? Um, I think just a few things. One, the you can't fact check your way out of a myth. Mm. And, you know, that's such a scary thing. Like you had mentioned something earlier about the police officer that had pointed the yeah. the fake gun at him. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it was a heck of a story. And said um, something, what did he say? He said, even though something is not real, it can still harm you because the sheriff's point was, if you would have pointed that at me, I would have shot you. Right. And so that just as it is, is scary enough. But when you, when you think about that in broader sense, that's kind of what's happening. Yeah. And that's the, you know, we talked a little bit about it with Jeff, uh, but that is one of the terrifying truths that have come out of the last several years um, since Donald Trump came down that uh, golden escalator in New York mm-hmm. City is his gaslighting of the truth and that if he feels as though if he says it, if his pundits say it and they say it enough, it's going to eventually be believed. It doesn't have to be factual. And when Kellyanne Conway said on national television, alternate facts, alternative, alternative facts, that that changed everything and it put it in perspective for me because it's like they do not have to live in reality. They are not, um, they're not limited by facts. The rest of the world is limited by facts and truth, but they are in a myth. They're living a myth. So something else that I jotted down that he said was that we don't have a democracy it's something you get up and do every day. Mm. And that was really powerful to me because I think you and I grew up in a time where we just have taken it so for granted mm-hmm. that we live in a democracy and it can never fall. And I think we've now been, our naivete has very much been um, exposed in the last several years that this is so fragile. We have to get up and work for it every single day. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that's one of the things that uh, has come to light in the last several years is that our rights are in jeopardy, even though when we think that they are secure, uh, once we're one Supreme Court decision away from everything changing, we're one... We've learned that in real time, haven't <laughs> yeah, we? Yeah, we're one uh, governor si- signature away from, uh, you know, undoing the Constitution. Uh, so, I mean... Yeah, it, it is prevalent today. So every one of us, bird enthusiasts and gardeners alike, need to wake up every morning and fight for democracy. Right. And I think you say, like, we are one decision away. I don't think, I think those decisions are already happening. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we live in a state where, you know, teachers can't have books in their classrooms anymore. Mm-hmm. That's very, very real. Yeah. And it's happening to our friends who are yes. educated. They are no longer allowed to have books in their classroom. Right. That's terrifying. Oh, it's horrifying. And after the Dobbs decision and the repealing of Roe v. Wade, 
There are some Supreme Court justices that have wanted to look at other precedents, such as same-sex marriage. And so, I mean, that could be in jeopardy. And then you start thinking about birth control. I mean, it is scary stuff if you start to think about what they could do in a blink of an eye. It is terrifying. And that's the other thing that I found, I mean... I don't know if it's ironic to say, but in talking to Jeff about, and he says, you know, this, I want this book to be ultimately about hope. And, <laughs> and then he says in the opening, like he has a child who is, you know, non-binary and LGBTQ. And I, and yet, and, and this is a, a person who is in direct threat and he still somehow has hope yeah. and God love him. Well, I, I, I want I want to share that with him. I want to have that with him. And, and ultimately, I guess I do. But I just can't imagine how a, a, someone in, in his situation is still able to write this way and to communicate and, and help offer some hope when you're looking at your child and saying, you are in jeopardy. Your very existence is in jeopardy. But his hope is similar to our hope. In fact, it's exactly the same because he finds hope in the emerging generation. Yes. And we've talked about that often, talked about it on the pod, about how inspired we are by our children and our children's friends uh, in their 20s and the teenagers that we know are doing some incredible stuff. And they're saying enough is enough. Now, the scary part is what are they going to be left with because of global warming, stripping of rights? My hope and my prayer, I should say, is probably a better way of saying it, is that we don't burn it down before they get a chance. Right. And it also is not, it does not absolve us from still continuing to, oh, right. to be a part of, of a movement and a part of sure. the work that needs to be done. Because, it, you know, as, as kids, I say kids, they're not kids, but young adults have told us, mm-hmm. it's like, well, y'all did this to us. We don't have a choice. Right. Like, don't, don't thank us and pat on, pat us on the back. This is what we're, this is the hand that we're dealt. Yeah. And so that does make me feel bad. Like I said, we've taken democracy. We've taken so many things for granted, you know, uh, and also climate, you know, care and things like Mm -hmm. that. And they don't have a choice. And that I do feel, feel bad about that. Um, Mm And I hope that people of our age group, um, and, and above are, are listening, are taking inspiration and are rolling up our sleeves and, and doing the necessary work. And I like the phrase that he used at the end of the interview when he said, it's an hard earned hope because so often we just think, Oh, if we think it into existence or if we change our attitude or, you know, if we just smile and laugh a lot, then things are going to turn out our way. Well, that's exactly what others think. Hope has to be hard-earned. It is a struggle. It is getting up each and every day, rolling up your sleeves, and battling to the end. And because of the battle, because of the struggle, because of the journey, that's why we have hope. We walk today so that we can walk again tomorrow. And that in itself is hope. I agree. Well, we had a great time with Jeff and uh, hope that you have enjoyed us being back in studio. It's been good to be with you, Missy. Yep. I'll see you again next week. We'll be back. Until then, it's an email or a text. (laughs) (laughs) Go to your room. (laughs) See you, folks.
You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5. And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org. <laughs>